0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with Joshua Eisenman, Associate Professor at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame and a Senior Fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. This show takes us deep into the relationship China has with both the developed world and the developing world. We look at the current state of affairs and try to explain the path it has taken over the last 40 years. I asked Joshua whether the PRC treats different areas of the developing world differently and how the One Belt, One Road initiative fits in with their global strategy. Joshua also talks about why we shouldn't see China stretching their reach as necessarily worrisome to other countries or politicians and why. We end the discussion discussing what global organizations can learn from China's efforts in bridging the divide between the developing and the developed worlds. Enjoy. The greater China's
1: power is within that particular society and context, it also increases its transparency and knowledge of what's going on within that particular society. For China, the point is, uh, or for the Communist Party of China, the point is to develop its relations with as many high-quality parties throughout the world as possible in order to enhance your relational power and build your network and your comprehensive national strength.
0: Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Why don't we start by learning a little bit more about your background and how you became involved with China?
1: Um, So, you know, I'm currently a a professor at uh, Notre Dame and and a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. And um, I came about this as a student in Washington, D.C. at about the time China was uh, being evaluated for its um, permanent normal trade status. Uh, you know, by the US Congress. And so I was a a young undergraduate at the time in the uh, the late 90s, kind of watching this process unfold. Uh, I became fascinated with it, fascinated with the the role of China, the emergence of China. And also with Chinese history and Chinese culture. So I went to China um, in my uh, junior year to study um, archaeology. Um, I, I studied it, I enjoyed it. But what was going on above ground was far more interesting um, in 1998 when I was there. And so um, I began studying Chinese contemporary politics and economics and um, went on to do my master's and went to the Hopkins Nanjing Center, which is a great program I hope uh, many of your listeners can look into and maybe attend in the future at um, uh, a joint program with the Hopkins. Uh, Johns Hopkins University and um, Nanjing University uh, in 2001 too. So, um, and it was from there that I, I really decided that I was going to work on China um, for the rest of my career if possible. And the question was how and through and in and what context. And so, um, I went on to work in several think tanks and, um, and on the hill, the, the Capitol Hill that is, um,
0: before deciding to go for academia. So, that's my um, short, long story. You've written a couple of books, and I'd like to take the opportunity to ask you uh, about where the books came from, who commissioned them, who came up with the ideas, the process of the discovery uh, and the research, and how long it took you to bring those to market.
1: Yeah, so um, on the topic of China in the developing world, I've published... Uh, three books and uh, with one now in the works. And so the first book, uh, China and the Developing World, Beijing Strategy for the 21st Century, um, which came out in 2007 um, with uh, uh, Rutledge, um, that book was an edited volume and the first of its kind in nearly two decades. Um, I did it along with Eric Higginbotham, who's at MIT, um, and uh, Derek Mitchell, Ambassador Derek Mitchell, uh, who is currently the president of NDI, uh, the National... Uh, Democratic Institute, um, formerly uh, U.S. Ambassador to Myanmar, uh, Burma. So uh, we three, and this was before his ambassadorship, um, we three put together this edited volume where we looked at the different regions of China of the developing world. Um, we told the to kind of uh, gave some background explanation of what they were about, and then we chose people who were real experts, a diverse group of experts um, who really knew about China's relations in those particular regions, and we chose those regions. Not based on our own particular uh, assumptions, but rather based on the formulation of the Chinese Foreign Ministry and the Chinese ministries and how they engage with um, these regions. They, they do it through kind of regional portfolios, not unlike the way the State Department and others do. Um, and so there's a, a kind of a, a, a context there that's not driven by us as scholars, but rather by um, the way that China organizes its engagement. Uh, of course, there's a long history of China in the developing world, dating back to the Mao era, which we'll talk about in a few minutes I believe um, the the um, the second book uh, was done in 2012 by myself and Ambassador David Shin. Um, that book was done for the uh, University of Pennsylvania Press, and it's called China and Africa: A Century of Engagement. Um, and that process. Um, uh, ambassador David Shin is a former US ambassador to Ethiopia and Burkina Faso, served on the continent for decades. Um, so he's a senior Africanist, and I'm a more junior, or at least I was at that point, a more junior um, sinologist. And so we came together to put that book together. Um, and that book uh, looks at all the thematic. Uh, issues in China-Africa relations from 2000, excuse me, from 1911 uh, to 2011. So um, a century of relations from the founding of modern China uh, to the um, uh, to the uh, end of the Hu Jintao era, and the beginning of the Xi Jinping era. And so that book, um, some have called it the Encyclopedia of China-Africa Relations. Um, actually, I'm very proud to say, um, after many years of effort, is being translated and will be published um, in a few months from the Chinese University of Hong Kong Press. And that's an updated, revised, but not censored version. Um, and I took great pains to ensure that this would be a non-censored version. So, Wow,
0: congratulations. There,
1: Yeah. That was a lot of effort, a lot of time Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure, um, you know, that was going to, uh, not have to come under the, um, the, the red pen. Um, and then the, uh, the, the third book uh, is called uh, China Steps Out, Beijing's uh, Major Power Engagement in the Developing World. And in many ways, that's a decade later rewrite of the first book. So um, the first book published in 2007, this later book published 2018, January, um, looks uh, 10 years later at those relationships. And of course, all the chapters are rewritten. Um, it's This time, it's me and Eric Higginbotham because Ambassador Uh, Mitchell was serving at the time, but Ambassador Mitchell does contribute a chapter to that volume, and it's again by Rutledge. Um, And that was... a great effort. I think it's a much better book um, than the first version because it's a social science book. Um, it's not a conference volume. Um, we, uh, me and Eric, uh, Eric and I were very diligent about making sure that people answered a very certain set of questions and those questions remain the same, which allowed us at the end to pull the threads together and make connections across uh, regions to make um, comparative uh, analysis across uh, regions to explain China's behavior throughout the developing world, not just in one particular region, but to join together and explain um, the, the the similarities and differences across uh, regions. Um, and, um, and now a new book that Ambassador Shin and I are doing right now um, is about the China-Africa security and, and uh, political relationship, because that is the relationship or the part of the relationship that is really growing the fastest that we see the Communist Party of China and we see the People's Liberation Army really expanding their linkages in Africa. And of course, this is a kind of microcosm of what we've seen in other uh, areas of the developing world. So, uh, for those who are interested in Africa, which is, of course, an important region of the developing world, I think there are a lot of things you can understand from that uh, set of relationships that are travelable, if you will, to other uh, developing regions. So, um, that's the work... you know, that I've done on this particular topic. I also wrote a book called China. Uh, uh, excuse me, read China's Green Revolution. And that book looks at how China itself uh, went about um, agricultural growth during the Mao era. But that's a
0: different topic. We're going to talk about Africa. We're going to talk about the one belt, one road a little bit later. But just broadly speaking, how would you characterize China's relationship with the developing world right now?
1: It's, it's certainly emerging and re-emerging. It's becoming more and more important. And um, this is very different than many um, IR theorists would expect. Um, they might say uh, China as a rising power is very interested in its engagement with the United States and other large powers. And that is true, but it's not the whole story. And the way that China has engaged the developing world, I think, is Uh, not the way that, you know, traditional Western IR theory would predict that it did, but still um, its relations with the developing world in many ways are uh, an important factor in its relations with major countries. Um, That being said, let me step back for a second and categorize these relations, if I might. Um, The way that I think of China's relations uh, with African countries and almost all developing countries with the exception of perhaps India is what I call comprehensive asymmetry. Um, What that means... Is that China has a symmetry um, asymmetric advantage it is more powerful and larger than all the developing countries on three measures um, the international level, so comprehensive national strength you think of you know military size of economy, um, total amount of population, etc um, the state level where it 's got state capacity, state structures, and coordination which are um, uh, in excess of almost all developing countries. And at the working or human level, where officials training and preparation exceeds that of their interlocutors on the other side. Um, So taken together, these three asymmetries are manifest in terms of imbalances and flows of trade, uh, capital aid, as well as the resources available to policymakers, which in turn constrain the developing countries' knowledge and options. So um, it's really this kind of interlocking asymmetry, which, which dominates the relationship. And so, but it's not, for example, um, necessary that it be the case. For instance, we could examine the case of, say, Singapore, Israel, where these are countries which on the international level have uh, less comprehensive national strength than China, but perhaps on the state level and the working level are actually better coordinated and have advantages. But in the developing world, that's not the case. And so China really can dominate its relations with developing countries. It holds this, this real power, particularly in bilateral relations, which um, it tends to pursue with uh, developing countries. So that's how I would kind of categorize the broader relationship of the developing world.
0: How has that relationship potentially changed over the last 40 years and then maybe the last 20 years? And what has propagated these changes?
1: The developing world or what was known as the Third World played a really important role for China during the Mao era, um, and that was because China was isolated uh, diplomatically, um, caught between the imperialist U.S. quote unquote and the revisionist Soviet Union quote unquote. Um, the revolutionary Chinese under Mao Zedong sought to gain friends and influence people throughout the developing nations of the world and brandish their credentials as revolutionaries um, and bemoan others for the their imperial or revisionist tendencies. Um, and so this was a really important aspect of it. The, the Afro-Asian or the Asia-Afro um, conferences in the 60s um, and and uh, Enlai's famous 1963 or 62 trip to uh, Africa, a very important um, kind of cornerstone, touchstone moments. Um, the, the, of course, the Bandung Conference um, as well in 1953, where China was reaching out and, you know, trying to claim leadership uh, among a, a community of developing nations, um, and in doing so, to kind of establish itself and gain credibility on the stage. And this, in many ways, culminates in China resuming its position in the um, UN Security Council with the support of many developing nations, African nations in particular. Um, then, during the the Deng era, we see that developing uh, nations took on a less important role uh, in Chinese foreign policy, um, where China began to focus on overseas Chinese communities in the West, overseas Chinese communities in Taiwan and Hong Kong, uh, building economic linkages with uh, the United States and Europe and markets. Um, You know, during that period, China's relations with the developing world uh, were minimized and not seen as important or as important. I would say this begins to change in about the year 2000 with the establishment of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which then leads to the establishment of numerous other multinational forums which are created by China to engage entire developing regions, whether it be Latin America or um, Arab uh, states, uh, as I said, Africa, now uh, Eastern Europe, et cetera, so, uh, ASEAN um, in, in Southeast Asia. So this uh, beginning to engage these nations, but on China's terms and through the institutions and the agenda that China is setting, um, is really a major change. And this begins under the Jiang Zemin era with this kind of going out policy um, that China begins to pursue. And um, it evolves, but it remains consistent over the Hu Jintao era, and then it really explodes um, in the Xi Jinping era um, under the One Belt, One Road or Belt and Road or uh, initiative. And this expansion, this rapid expansion of China's engagement with the developing world um, is really like nothing we've seen before. Um, But where it is really interesting and where it kind of has reminiscences of the past is that um, its focus on what the Chinese call multipolarity and the democratization of international relations are both both intended to constrain the United States um, and to provide additional support for China around the world. Um, And so in this way, it does harken back to the past, the idea that you engage with the developing world in order to constrain or to take on the U.S. in this case. And so for China, the BRICS, for example, are really important kind of nodes of uh, multipolarity, as they call it, which, if they are brought together, can constrain U.S. unilateral behavior. At least that's the thinking. Democratization of international relations is about the kind of Gulliver strategy that many, many, many developing countries come together to kind of change the norms of international relations in ways that constrain the U.S. So it's not to say that um, the developing world is important for uh, unimportant for its own right. It, it has its own value, particularly in economic terms. But in terms of the way China views the geopolitics of the world right now, um, the most important value of developing countries is as force multipliers in China's relations and an attempt to uh, rise as a major power in the world today.
0: As you said, China is now in a position where they can set the agenda of relationships with different areas of the world. Do you believe that PRC treats different parts of the developing world differently compared to Africa, compared to Southeast Asia, compared to Central America or to North America, for instance? So China certainly recognizes differences in
1: regions and nations, and it regularly mentions this importance of these local considerations. And they, they regularly talk about how, for example, Chinese lessons learned in China cannot be just wholesale enacted in other parts of the developing world without uh, first ensuring that local conditions are understood. So this is a, a kind of mantra that we often hear. And So definitely, you have a recognition on the the Chinese side that there is not a kind of one-size-fits-all model or approach to engagement with the developing world. On the Chinese side, you also have, as you do in other countries, uh, people who worked in certain areas being transferred into other areas. And so their experiences uh, in those previous postings, uh, working on those other regions, um, may help to determine how they view issues in other regions. If you're posted in Central America or working on Central American portfolio um, at length, and then you're moved to sub-Saharan African portfolio, um, the lessons you learned um, from the previous may influence the way you behave. And so this is i think certainly something we see it's not a, a uniquely chinese phenomenon but path dependence in terms of behavior is certainly something we see there is also i would say a kind of a certain set of um, initiatives which are common, and you will see um, not identical but similarities in, in, in the way that the initiatives are carried out across the developing world. And the BRI is the uh, Belt and Road initiative is the clearest example of this, where you have a like a, a debt-driven finance uh, strategy uh, based on China's you know XM Bank and the Silk Road Fund and the China Development Bank, and in many ways that approach which originates in Africa, um, you know, decade before, um, I'm not saying it hadn't been employed elsewhere, but China had, was employing that in Sudan and, and Angola um, in the early 2000s. So we see that strategy, which was seen to be effective, then spread and, and deployed elsewhere uh, in the developing world. And so you do have what I would call a a smorgasbord approach or a packaged approach where um, those countries could come to China and say, well, we want a little bit of this, we don't want that. But what is actually in the smorgasbord um, is, that is Chinese determined. And you can kind of take elements of it, but it's very hard to kind of create new elements of it if the Chinese side is not interested, um, if that makes sense. Now, there is um, another important driver of the similarity in the relations that China develops um, across these regions. And that is that the way that China views its relations is in terms of something that you could consider or is called relational power, which means that it expands its network of contacts because the the larger and the stronger and the more well-developed that network is, the greater China's power is within that particular society and context, it also increases its transparency and knowledge of what's going on within that particular society. For China, the point is, uh, or for the Communist Party of China, the point is to develop its relations with as many high-quality parties throughout the world as possible in order to enhance your relational power and build your network and your comprehensive national strength. So that means that there, is a, there are similarities then that we can note. For example, in the International Department of the Communist Party of China, it has uh, uh, specific divisions for each one of these regional areas. And um, certainly they deploy a similar set of techniques, a host diplomacy, um, cadre training, et cetera. And so there are some uh, similarities then that we can see in terms of the tactics and approaches uh, that are used by the Chinese
0: Can you explain a little bit about how you see the One Belt, One Road initiative and how that fits into PRC's strategy with the developing world, including Africa?
1: I mean, this is a very important question because, you know, like all things, uh, BRI has evolved. what it began as was a uh, debt-driven finance strategy to enhance uh, infrastructure development uh, throughout the developing world. Um, and as I said before, a lot of that approach began um, you know, in Africa and then it is, was deployed elsewhere. Um, however, it's expanded in numerous ways that have now essentially it rendered it indistinguishable from China's overall strategy from the developing world. So let me explain further. So it, BRI uh, you did not initially include Africa. Uh, it did not include certain places. It did not include Latin America, uh, but it does now, which is to say that the uh, initial strategy was a primarily Asia-based strategy. Uh, if not entirely Asia-based Um and it is now beyond that. It is well, maybe it included a maritime Silk Road stop in Kenya uh, or Djibouti, but it did not include, you know, I don't know, Nigeria, Congo, and these other places, which are now part of the strategy. So it's now expanded geographically to include all areas of the developing world. Um, it, topically, it has gone beyond simple infrastructure construction to uh, the development of, uh, you know, first high tech infrastructure, not just roads and bridges, but 5G networks and facial recognition software and, um, you know, all types of different security and in all types of, you know, what they call the Um, The smart cities strategy has been nested into the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, become indistinguishable again from it, so that um, China's spread of 5G through Huawei is part of the Belt and Road. There's really no way to uh, separate it from that. Um, And so there's um, an expansion you know, in terms of what the Belt and Road includes and the topics. Um, And I would also say there's an expansion in terms of the ambition of it. And this goes to the geography and also the topics, but just the general objectives of it seem to be um, just really uh, intensified. So um, this is not just about uh, building out Uh, infrastructure. It's also about creating a new world order to some degree. And that's, maybe that was the original intention, or maybe it's kind of just grown. But um, in terms of China's strategy with the developing world, it now becomes indistinguishable from BRI. BRI is China's strategy in the developing world. Um, And so what's interesting is that BRI, now that it's reaching out to Italy and all these other places, um, is essentially linking China's strategy with the developing world to China's strategy with the developed world. And uh, it is also tying together China to developing countries financially and politically and bringing them directly under China's influence. So I would say, you know, there there was a point where BRI was a, a portion of China in the developing world. But I would say that circle has grown so, Uh, so large that it now essentially overshadows China in the developing world It encompasses China in the developing world. So so I guess the question now is, if BRI has become everything, has it become nothing? Um, I don't know. Um, From a conceptual perspective, if BRI has come to dominate China's foreign policy to that degree, well then it seems um, that Xi Jinping and his allies have been successful in ensuring that BRI is the fundamental uh, conceptual framework for all of China's foreign policy. So um, it's difficult to discuss Belt and Road Initiative. Um, You know, for example, just the other day, I think a batch of masks uh, appeared in Italy from China, and it was part of the, quote, health, the health belt and road or something like that. So conceptually, there is almost nothing that does not touch on um, the BRI initiative in some way, shape or form at this time.
0: I know that some other countries and people I know are a little bit uneasy about how swiftly and how far and how easily China is starting to reach and have influence in relationships through its one belt, one road. Can you talk those people off the ledge of unease in that this is not something that the world needs to be worried about as far as trying to assert a dominance of power?
1: China does not want to take the rewards, if you will, of its economic ascent mm. and hand them over to these countries and not get paid back. It, um it wants everything it wants the benefit of the political bump that comes with giving a loan it wants to be paid back and it wants to enhance the relationship this is not a giveaway because that that itself is an unsustainable approach to engaging these countries So, what they want to do is establish a kind of dependency relationship but to steal an old phrase um but what they do not want to do in my opinion at this point anyway is to indebt these countries to the extent that they spook other countries from engaging china or they forestall future types of engagements economic right because it's very important to perceive of this in the chinese context um and this is professor Chinya chang at um the china foreign affairs university wrote a book on relationality uh, mm-hmm. published by um cambridge university press not too long ago mm. it, what he talks about is this development of a relationship um through wrenching and wrenching is kind of a uh, like a favor yeah. where um i do you a favor and then you owe me a favor Sounds like, and oh, it's shit. only yeah it's 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 like guanxi but when i do a wrenching for you then it's up to you to know that you have to return that wrenching to me mm-hmm. and then and then it's through this development of our relationship where i do favors for you and you do favors for me that we build our relationship together to our mutual common benefit and our mutual uh, uh good so this is i think how uh, china sees these relationships and so it would be perhaps short-sighted to um call in loans the way a banker on wall street might um in a very in a short-sighted way in fact china would rather renegotiate those loans out and keep the relationship, which to them is perhaps more important. So um, from those criticisms that China has received from its engagement in Malaysia, from Mohammed Mahathir, from Mm. other engagements um, that have not gone very well, um, you can see that when it receives this kind of pushback, its first inclination is rarely to say call in the loan. Um, In fact, it, it would rather portray itself as a benevolent uh, partner, a large, powerful but yet benevolent partner in order to maintain all of the uh, uh, sunken costs of the relationship all of those wrenching all of those favors that have been done they're all gone if you destroy the relationship and the relational power created is is dissipated and is of no value to you is China so there there would be little value from a strategic perspective to destroy the relationship and get paid back your money if the money to you is relatively small and the relationship is relatively important. But at the same time, you can't create a moral hazard problem by simply handing out checks unsustainably. So you need to uh, find a balance between this. And so this is, I think, what's um, the best way to conceive of the relationship. Because if every country that borrowed money from China uh, defaulted on the debt, gave up its ports. I mean, you, you know, when, when, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, gave the 99 year lease of Port Hamantota to China, mm-hmm. the, the, the uproar that one incident caused, imagine if that mm-hmm. were multiplied three, four five times, the public diplomacy of it would almost be enough to forestall any future development of BRI. True. So, um, you you know, I agree with you that 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 may, it may be in the backs of some people's minds, but I think that's almost it would be too smart by half. It would be destroying yeah. <laughs> the Golden Goose. Uh,
0: uh, good way of putting it.
1: You know, destroy the Golden Goose because yeah. You, yeah, you'd get that money, but it would be worthless in the long term because you destroy the Bri concept.
0: Okay, last topic to tie it all together. What do global organizations and businesses in particular need to know about China's efforts in the developing world?
1: Um, I would say the most important thing to know is that this is just the beginning. Um, You know, this is, uh, we have finished stage one. Stage one was basically 2000 to 2020. And now we are graduated into a much more mature China, uh, Chinese relationship with these developing countries. Um, In in many ways, you could almost think of there being a pre-stage one, a kind of, uh, you know, a real 1.0 being these uh, era of uh, revolutionary movements when China, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, supported these Mao, uh, under Mao, supported these revolutionary movements. And then you can graduate to a 2.0 since 2000. And now we're actually moving into a 3.0. You know a, a kind of a, um, a more mature relationship that China's developed uh, with these uh, nations, and so um, China is going to become an increasingly important trade partner, um, an increasingly important political partner, and military partner. And ex- I would focus especially on the second, um, in the second and third, uh, the the politics and the security. I think that's where the relationship is going in the future. Um, technology as well through five G. Um, we may have seen. I wouldn't say a peak of the economic relationship in terms of trade, but maybe a plateauing of the trade relationship. Um, and he said, what we're going to see is more close political relations between, uh, political parties in the developing world and the communist party of China, closer, um, security relations between the people's liberation army and militaries, uh, in the, uh, developing world. Um, and an expansion of uh, China's uh, efforts to influence um, and alter the global international order, and this will, uh, this may take place in large part through the provision of public goods, um, or what China depicts as public goods. Although, when it comes to its core national interests, or what it calls its core national interests of the South China Sea, Tibet, Taiwan, etc., those things will remain unchanged. But in many ways, China is going to work on this soft influence approach. And I'm specifically not saying soft power, because I consider that not a government driven effort. But in China's Um, effort, this kind of soft influence approach, um, the use of outward focused propaganda efforts in particular, we're going to see increased quite a lot in the developing world of telling a good Chinese story is what uh, uh, President Xi Jinping called it. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that Um, in terms of um, the businesses and, and global organizations. I think the important thing for them to know if they don't know it already is that Um, is this concept that we'd mentioned before of renting. And that when, you know, a Chinese partner does a favor for you, it's in the context of expecting that you would do one for them in return. That one hand is going to wash the other. And that you'll be in their Rolodex, and they may call on you to do a favor. And if you don't do that favor, um, then you will feel um, guilt and shame, and you may not have another favor done for you in return, and therefore there is a pressure on you. And so that essentially the point I'm driving home is if you're an organization or a business with Dealing with China, um, that this is the kind of uh, engagement uh, you should be expecting because it's kind of rooted, as Chinya uh, Chen talks about it, in the Confucian cultural community uh, of China. And so, you know, as you engage China, you should be prepared to be part of this kind of relationship and to understand that by accepting a favor, you are in fact—I um, wouldn't say committing yourself, but in some to some degree, committing yourself to either doing a favor in return or to the shame and guilt that's associated with not being able to fulfill um, that wrenching circle to Juan Renqing. So I think it's an important concept, and um, I think Professor Chinya Cheng's work on this is a, is an interesting addition to the literature. So I think it helps us to understand um, how China engages organizations and actors um, in the international uh, relations space, and why it's important for us to um, understand why China is so interested in preserving relationships, even when in the short term, it seems that those relationships are actually doing it financial harm. And so I think that that's a a kind of maybe an important way to to think about it. And I think one other thing uh, I will leave your listeners with, and that is never to forget that the Communist Party of China is a political organization first and foremost. That it has economic means, it has political means, and it has military means to achieving its political objectives. But its objectives are always political. And those political objectives, uh, first and foremost, include controlling China. Um, But now they are expanding uh, to other issues and other elements as well. So to never misunderstand and believe that simply because you went to Harvard Business School and he went to Harvard Business School, that you both have the same objective. Chinese businessmen ultimately are under the leadership of the Communist Party of China, whether they wish to admit it or not, And um, uh, your listeners that are businesses in particular should uh, be well to keep that in mind and to never um, assume or ask of their Chinese interlocutors to be able to do things uh, or to assume that Chinese interlocutors can do things that are beyond what the party would prescribe them to do. Um, And this gets directly to the issue of Huawei uh, claiming that it doesn't have to answer to the Chinese government, which of course it does. Of course it does. Maybe I'll leave you, uh, leave you with that. And um, thank you very much for having me here today.
0: Joshua, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with.